Well, I assume everybody has seen the full self-driving 12 that Elon Musk put on X the other day, where the car was essentially driving itself. And I thought, well, Rosemary is going to put in her order for the Cybertruck, and all will be right with the world. It's, I'm not the biggest fan of, of the aesthetics of the Cybertruck, I will say. <laughs> well, you're probably the only person on the planet because they have a five-year wait list for those trucks. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I, um, I can barely believe that they have orders for that, but it's just been an example where I've had to, had to accept that I don't, I don't have my finger on the pulse of what um, truck drivers want, want their trucks to look like. Yeah. Well, Phil, have you, have you placed your order for the new Tesla Cybertruck? I have not. Uh, I went in probably the opposite direction. I bought myself an electric scooter. Uh, it goes 40 miles an hour, about what, 65, 70 kilometers an hour, uh, which is extremely fast and it's fun. Wait, do you mean a scooter that you stand on? Like, uh, you know, not, not like a little tiny motorbike, but, a a stand up scooter. That's too fast. I'll tell you what, if, if you, if you look at the side of my face, you might see the remnants of a face plant that I did about uh, three days after I got the thing, but I'm better at writing it now. And it's, it's, I got one and it still didn't, didn't matter, but it's, it's great actually. So I, I have not, uh, I don't know that I'm planning to invest in a cyber truck anytime soon. Bill, please, please buy a helmet. I have one. Orsted is having a very bad month or so. A uh, number of problems going on there. Uh, they have their stock has dropped uh, the most ever, about twenty, a little over twenty percent, due to some problems, mostly in the United States. Uh, supply chain challenges on projects like Ocean Wind One, Sunrise Wind, Revolution Wind. And having deliveries for uh, monopiles is a, evidently is a problem. There's a delayed. There are so many things happening with Orsted at the moment, Bill. And a lot of this it seems to be things that are out of their control. Supply chain issues, interest rates, also investment tax credits are not coming out to what they thought they would be. And so... Uh, Mads Nipper, the CEO of Orsted, in a call, and when you're, when this podcast comes out, it's been a couple of days ago, uh, he was not happy. Uh, and they are considering abandoning future projects uh, in the U.S. because the profitability criteria is not being met. And they do plan to finish up the projects they signed up to in the Northeast of the United States because they have sunk costs. And I'm not, not sure that makes sense, but we'll I think Orsted... We'll finish those projects. Uh, but they're looking at uh, a financial impact of a little over $2 billion for the, these three wind projects that are happening in, in the United States. Bill, I, I, when all this went down earlier today, the news reporting was insane. Uh, everybody was trying to figure out what happened to Orsted because uh, as a company that is so knowledgeable in wind period and renewable energy, uh, they have really hit a real impasse in the United States. 
Indeed. And as you've indicated, um, you know, Mads Nipper came out and said these are things that are unfortunately largely out of their control. They need the supply chain to meet their contractual obligations in terms of component delivery. Um, that's contributing a little over, you know, has the potential to contribute a little over 700 million um, in impairments uh, if they don't get back on track. Um, they're already delaying uh, one of those three projects uh, to 2026 now. Um, I believe it's the uh, the ocean wind is now uh, not slated to uh, to come online until 2026 as a result. And you're you're seeing, you know, as you've also indicated, this in investment tax credit, um, which is is slightly interesting and odd because. <sighs> You know, the rules with this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the rules for the production tax credit and the investment tax credit were never quite precisely finalized. Um, and we're still technically waiting for official um, uh, Internal Revenue Service confirmation about what the the qualification criteria are going to be. And what it's looking like at this point is that Orsted's suggesting that perhaps the investment tax credit's not going to be as lucrative as it would have been uh, for them. The other challenge to that is they're not going to be able to take advantage of a lot of the domestic content um, production uh, benefits that come from the production tax credit side of it. Uh, particularly because we don't have the necessary investment in um, the uh, the blades, the nacelle, the, the monopile and jacket foundation fabrication and manufacturing capabilities here in the United States to be able to support uh, even the projects that are that are being worked on right now. We're still having to source a lot of those components from Europe um, and potentially from Asia, but mostly Europe. And bring them over and and install them. Uh, so this is also potentially what's contributing to those supply chain issues. But um, you know, th all of those things coupled with this high interest rate environment that we still find ourselves in, where you know, I mean, look, inflation still exists, but it's been mostly dealt with, and yet the U.S. Federal Reserve also insists on continuing to send signals to the market that they want to continue raising interest rates albeit modestly but um you know this is in this is a a combination or what uh mad snipper from from Orsted referred to as a perfect storm of uh issues that have created an unfriendly environment for investment in offshore wind in the United States at this point and and that's going to be not only a challenge for Orsted, but frankly, a challenge for everybody. Well, what is what is the follow up in the short term here? You know, Orsted financially, these projects, these offshore projects in the in the U.S. have an impact on their cap table. Like the valuation of Orsted is dropping at a remarkable rate over the last year or so. It has dropped a, a good amount, uh, enough to be worrisome. And I think investors are starting to get a little bit. Uh, worried about the future. Now, obviously, Orsted is uh, backed by Denmark and, and is a big driver in the Danish economy somewhat. 
uh, Novo Nordisk sound like they're taking over that top role because of some of the pharmaceuticals that are happening up in Denmark. But in, in terms of just the business outlook and what they do next, I, I don't think Matt Snipper is wrong about this. I just don't know what he's going to do about it. The, the challenge here is these are things that are out of their control, largely. Um, you know, you're you're seeing a situation where, you know, yes, they can, you know, threaten certain things to the supply chain, but ultimately they are dependent on the supply chain to be able to deliver the components, um, you know, on the contractually ob obligated schedule. You know, once um, the contracts have been signed and once, uh, you know, the final investment decision or FID is, is uh, decided upon, that triggers a certain schedule of dates that everybody that's involved in the project has to be able to abide by. And if the supply chain is still going to be stung by, you know, high input costs, either, again, inflation related or um, the availability of materials or what have you, you know, the the supply chain obviously has its own set of profitability issues, but it's starting to spill down um, into, you know, the the project developers and, and uh, the rest of the um, kind of value chain in, involved in both onshore wind, offshore wind, solar, etc., um, so this is this is going to continue to be a, a challenge. You know, I was asked um, a similar question earlier today: um, what can be done? And at the end of the day, this is all now kind of in the hands of the U.S. Federal Reserve. I mean, that's the one knob that can be turned here that will start having a material impact on a lot of these issues. If we can start lowering interest rates, it's going to unlock uh, a lot more investor uh, money, and it's going to unlock a lot more CapEx investments in the fabrication facilities as well that are needed in the United States to be able to handle um, you know, the, the manufacturing and fabrication of, of components domestically for these projects that will in turn start, um, you know, easing pressure on, um, the supply chain companies, um, you know, input costs, uh, lower interest rates will, will have a material impact on, um, you know, lowering, uh, their input costs, which will then also, again, contribute to lower CapEx on, on a project. Um, you know, lower interest rates also mean, you know, lower cost of money um, and the potential to be able to get back to uh, the power purchase contract prices that, you know, were originally being agreed upon. And now companies are, are trying to pull out of uh, of those power purchase contracts. So these are the this is the one knob that I think can be turned is, is starting to lower interest rates. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge waterfall, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to continue as the federal reserve indicating that you're going to increase interest rates in an environment where everybody's already, you know, backed out of a lot of the investments or trying to back out of a lot of the investments that they were committed to, uh, this is not going to, this is going to delay the, the, the takeoff of the industry until, you know, well into 2025 or 2026. We're, we're at least seeing, you know, this this is a setback that's already uh, impacting us by a good six to nine months uh, from now. You know, it'll probably be about the middle of next year before you see anybody 
diving back in whole hog in the U.S. offshore wind market. Do you think that we'll have to see a difference in the way the contracts are written going forward? Because I remember a little while ago we talked about some negotiation with an offshore wind developer that was um, being asked to guarantee a certain output of energy and we discussed how you'd be crazy to to guarantee write a contract like that that um, locked you into something that you had no control over because you can't control how much wind there is in a year. So your contract can, you know, unless you're an, an idiot, you would write your contract so that it said you have, you know, other performance metrics that you can control rather than, you know, something that relies on Mother Nature. Um, in the past, maybe people thought that supply chain costs and interest rates and tax credits were something that could be, you know, accurately predicted ahead of time. We're saying it's not just the wind industry that has this problem. We have, it sounds really familiar to me, like the same reason why the building industry in Australia is um, having a lot of problems because there were so many fixed price contracts and the price went up and everyone just went out of business in, in response. They just couldn't, you know, they, they could not deliver on those contracts. Um, so yeah, obviously these projects at offshore wind farm is a bit more of a big deal if that gets canceled compared to if somebody's home doesn't get built at the, um, you know, the price that was agreed, but, you know, moving forward, aren't we crazy to say, I'm going to take all of the risk for supply chains, interest rates and everything on the, you know, on the developers side, shouldn't they be writing into their contracts that it has the price, final price has something to do with where those um, those, you know, those indicators go in the future. But don't we have Avon Grid as a good example there where they got pressured into low PPAs and everything went up and they, they essentially walked away. Orsa's not saying they're going to walk away, but I think here's the interesting company that hasn't said anything yet, Equinor. What is Equinor doing in the middle of this? Now that they see uh, Orsa having trouble and Avon Grid walking away, Equinor is being really quiet. Empire Wind, not hearing a lot about what are they doing? Are, are they taking a different avenue? I know they're really tied to New York, and, and that's a particular problem on its own. But there's not a lot of players in this market space, and two of the big ones are having really strong financial difficulty right now. Yeah, well, isn't the difference, um, you know, who's got diversification beyond this, um, you know, one, one market with these problems? Equinor's got all, you know... They're laughing all the way to the bank with all of their oil and gas money sitting there. It must be a blip to them um, and a yeah, perfect opportunity to, you know, wear a few losses and take the whole market. And in a couple of years, they're the only ones with any experience building offshore wind farms. So are the only winners in offshore wind the oil and gas companies? That's a great question. And I think long term, it may be the case where they are the majority owner or investor in a lot of the projects. It's it's hard for pure play wind company to to do offshore wind project development that is so capital intensive um and in a market environment that makes it you know like like Rosemary just said, I mean, they nobody else can get the requisite experience to, and obviously Orsted's plenty experience with what they've done in Europe and, and Taiwan, et cetera. But they, it, there's still specific things that are unique to each market. I mean, you see Brazil uh, looking to build up, you know, they, they have the second biggest pipeline now in terms of proposed projects in the world behind China. Um, 
you know, you're you're at a point where, you know, in in any other market, uh, you know, you're you're not necessarily going to have the opportunity to gain the experience if you're not able to play in the market. And if deep pockets are the only thing that are is going to ensure that you can play in the market, then it, it basically does come down to sovereign wealth funds and or, you know, the oil and gas companies, you know, that may have a sovereign wealth fund behind them, like, uh, you know, Equinor or, um, you know, perhaps some Saudi companies that will end up partnering with somebody uh, that that has some offshore wind development experience. But it's it's interesting because that is something that that could occur out of out of all of this is uh, and and also potentially answers the question why did some of these major oil and gas companies like BP and Equinor um, bid so much for the lease rights in places like New York um, and and the Northeast of the United States. Uh, it's because they understand fundamentally the value of having these offshore lease rights. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that's that's kind of an interesting notion at uh, at this point. Uh, I I think it's challenging. I, I hate to get all conspiratorial here, but you kind of wonder. No one no one in the administration is 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 batting an eye at this. This is happening uh, a week after they announce a billion dollars going to carbon capture. And where's the DOE? Nothing. Eversource left the marketplace uh, weeks ago, right? Uh, so the Americans are abandoning in this re relatively quickly. I don't know what they have left. And I haven't heard any sort of leadership from the DOE or uh, Boehm or anybody say, hey, this is a problem when you get on this thing. Nothing. It's been complete radio silence. And I won't suggest conspiracy theories per se, but there definitely is. There's a, you know, I was asked earlier today whether or not I think the U.S. offshore wind market is in a crisis, and I have to agree with that sentiment that this is a short-term crisis that we are facing, and we're the industry is the only one that's kind of bearing the brunt of it. Every, like you said, I mean, the administration is just kind of shrugging their shoulders, like we're saying, hey, we're we're in a crisis here, guys, and and they're still off running tenders for, you know the Gulf of Mexico. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. The first offshore wind development rights auction for the Gulf of Mexico by the Biden administration concluded with a single winning bid of $5.6 million. Uh, German company RWE secured the rights to 100,000 acres off Louisiana, uh, with two lease areas off of Texas receiving no bids. <laughs> now, Phil, uh, we, we were live streaming this as it was going on on LinkedIn and my first on the first pass, uh, the the bids were really low, and I replied, you know, wake me up when you, they get to one hundred million. Well, they didn't get anywhere near that amount. What happened? Yes, I guess you're still asleep then, because yeah, I if we if we go back to you know our prediction from about a month ago, 
as to what was going to happen. We said that the prices were likely to come in, you know, below California uh, levels, but still decently healthy because there's there are certain plays in doing Gulf of Mexico projects that make sense if you're doing things like hydrogen production or you know you've got at least some certainty in terms of power offtake in ERCOT or the Southwest Power Pool. Um, but the Texas Galveston one and two sites didn't even get any bids at all. And there were two participants in the auction. RWE was one of them. There were a total of three bids, and they ended up winning for $54 and something per acre, which is practically unheard of. That's that's almost as dirt cheap as it was 10 years ago when um you know Dominion Energy went after the uh the coastal Virginia offshore wind site and, and US wind got the the uh Marwind uh project sites. So I'm I'm shocked, honestly, because I was, you know, it's funny, I was expecting to be live streaming all day, and that ended up taking about an hour uh, and 10 minutes. And uh, it's so, you know, as we were just talking about with Orsted, I think this is reflective of the current situation. And I I said this uh, to a to a journalist earlier uh, in an interview where he was asking whether or not you know, basically, or basically he was asking what happened. And I said, you know, look, at the end of the day, I think all these inflation pressures, the CapEx issues, the, the, you know, lack of certainty all kind of played into, um, you know, increasing the, the risk to a point where, you know, 15 or so companies that were even registered for uh, the tender didn't even bother participating. I mean, the oil and gas companies completely sat out. And RWE looks like they got a really great deal. Uh, But keep in mind that what RWE won the rights to is also a project where there's some money um, that's been allocated to a company in Louisiana um, to actually do hydrogen production and kind of a a power to X uh, type of an application. So they have a a route to market for the power or at least a portion of the power that they're going to generate. And then they can sell the rest of it to the Southwest Power Pool and or ERCOT, depending on how they want to hook up the, the cables. Um, so, you know, this is this is interesting. Um, and again, quite shocking that this is the way it turned out. Well, is it driven by the energy prices locally in Louisiana and Texas, where they're relatively low compared to New York, that uh, putting offshore wind in Today is at least the numbers we're hearing on the East Coast are somewhere around $100 a megawatt hour. That doesn't play well down in Texas and Louisiana. Those numbers are really high. Is that the drivers that they can't deliver electricity to the grid there because those two places can get electricity much cheaper and that it would have to take some sort of green hydrogen uh, approach to make sense for an RWE to go ahead and do this? It's part of it. So there were four or five factors that kind of influenced the the risk associated with these Gulf of Mexico projects in general. One was weather. Obviously, there's a more hurricane prone, you know, area. Um, the second one is the soil conditions. Although, interestingly, I didn't think that was as much of an issue for the oil and gas companies. And one reason why they would have plowed into this, because, um, you know, again, as we we talked about, uh, with the Orsted thing, 
they want to be able to own the rights to lucrative project sites where you know they could use the the power generation to power their offshore rigs um and so they're used to putting rigs in soft soil conditions in the gulf of mexico so you know what's the issue with you know for them to to handle uh you know offshore wind jackets as opposed to you know oil and gas jackets or tension like platforms so uh, you know that was a bit of a, a head scratcher that we didn't see more engagement on on that but again i think that goes back to um the profitability issues now like i've been saying you know the weather risk the the soil conditions those were two of the risks um the power offtake was a third one and that does play into it where yes you've got you know average price in ERCOT right now is around you know $32 a megawatt hour and if you're talking about building a project that's 80 90 or 100 dollars a megawatt hour in in an offshore wind PPA that's not as attractive um but again the the I figured that the oil and gas companies could have leveraged some of that power for their oil and gas platforms which is exactly what they're doing in the North Sea in in Europe um and they're actually talking about doing in in different places in China as well um to support some of their uh oil and gas extraction activities so that one still is is a bit confounding but i think overarching all of this was the interest rate environment and the remnants of inflation that the industry is still dealing with um i think this this whole issue that we talked about with Orsted, I think we covered a lot of what has been on the minds of a lot of project development companies and what's kind of led them to kind of pull back uh, at this point. So my question uh, to Boehm is really like, why did we go forward with an auction when over the past six or nine months, it looked like we were heading in this direction where you know, initially there were some signals that companies either weren't going to participate or didn't want to bid that high. To be honest, I thought that that was really just people playing the market. You know, they they were trying to send signals to their competitors through, you know, press releases and public statements, uh, trying to, you know, game the system a little bit and, and game the auction. But at the end of the day, this is a, a complete disaster when, you know, the government expected, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in additional revenue like they got for these project sites in in the northeast or even in california they got 5.6 million dollars and now these texas sites you know presumably they get retendered at some point in the future but i mean it's it's a bit of a it, i'd have to say it's a bit of a disaster lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. A cargo ship named Pixis Ocean set sail this month with wind-powered quote-unquote wind wings technology aimed at reducing emissions. Uh, this ship had large steel sails that were designed by uh, Bar Technologies and produced by Yara Marine. They are expected to to uh, generate about 30% of the uh, emission savings for this ship. So that's a really cool idea. We're using some, uh, some sails, some new advanced sails 
Now, there's a bunch of ships that are going to be trying this technology, but this is really the first one to to do it in earnest. If you watch online and if you can go online on YouTube and, and watch Wind Wings, uh, it's kind of a cool system, Rosemary. The, the, the quote-unquote sails or wind turbine blades is what it looks like are on pivots, and so they can rise up and, and be used to sail. And then they get close to shore, or they have to go underneath the bridge, they just kind of fold down back on deck. So that's one of the big problems with any sort of sailing vessel today, because everything's run off some form of, of uh, uh, petroleum product, uh, that how do you go underneath the, all the, the bridges and things you have to go to to get to the docks? Uh, so the system is really interesting. And I wanted to get your take on using steel for these for these wings it seems like uh, there's if you look at again i'll go back to the youtube video that i saw which is is a big beam in the middle and maybe the outside shell maybe plastic or fiberglass but does that make sense in, in terms of just uh cost is is that what's driving all the use of steel and, and does it does it make sense to make something as as rigid as that as as a sail instead of something that is more like uh, a fabric wind coated wind turbine like we saw from GE a couple of years ago where the you could slide on and on the fabric to make a sail. Yeah, I think it's more the question is probably more not should you make it out of steel, but you probably should be always questioning why you wouldn't make something out of steel or another, you know, low cost material. So, you know, the wind turbine blades on on, on blades on a wind turbine have a really a lot of good reasons why they need to be light. Um, you know, they're sitting all the way up in the air on the tower. And the heavier the blades are, the stronger the tower, the foundation, all of the bearings. You know, all, um, the the whole, um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of stuff needs to be sized bigger if you have heavier blades. Um, so you see this drive to get lighter blades because it's not just that, um, yeah, like adding material like carbon fiber to reduce the the weight. It increases the cost of the blade, but overall you end up with a cheaper project because it takes cost out of everything else. But if you've got a sail just directly stuck on a, a ship, it doesn't have those same drivers to be light. I mean, yeah, if you think about shipping containers are not, you know, particularly lightweight, right? Because it doesn't really matter, um, you know, once something's floating in a, in a ship, the weight is not nearly that important as it is in um, other applications, like, yeah, on a wind turbine or on transport, um, like cars or something like that. So it makes sense from that point of view to me. Um, also, it's going to be operating in a very corrosive environment. So I guess they're trying to use materials that shipbuilders are already familiar with. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't give this wing to a wind turbine manufacturer to make the blades. You would give it to a shipbuilder because they're the ones that are going to know what are the alloys that you can use that you know are going to survive the environment and. Um, I'm assuming that you're going to be doing at least some of the manufacturing at the port close to where it, you know, first, first disembarks, you're not going to be, you know, making it in some factory inland and then, then driving it over there. So you need to know what manufacturing methods are, are common and, uh, yeah, available, um, in the, the place that you need it. There was another project called Ocean Wings. It's very similar. And I think they were using fabric at the time, uh, and, they have different approaches, but there's not just one company working on this, which is a little shocking. It seems like there's going to be a big demand to have sales on ships to reduce the emissions. Well, I'm pretty sure that it has been done before. I mean, I know that um, uh, Wind Wings does does exist already. That's not just a, the 
pictures that you see that aren't only computer renderings. They've got, you know, some real products and you can go on their website. They've got a manufacturing gallery so you can see um, exactly what's happening there. But I believe in the past, um, even before, you know, this real drive to take emissions out of the shipping industry, I'm pretty sure that Maersk had um, some, uh, yeah, some hybrid wind slash, I, I don't know what other fuel they were using, um, technology and they retired it because it, like, it, it made financial sense kind of just, but not enough to justify the bother of having, you know, multiple different kinds of, of ships in their, their fleet is my, my memory. Um, it's something that, that kind of borderline has always made sense. I mean, obviously if you think like way, way, way back, shipping was all done by sale, right? Um, so it's not that strange. Um, and shipping is going to be one of the very hardest sectors to decarbonize fully because simply because shipping fuel is so, so, so cheap, you know, it's the literal bottom of the barrel, um, the product that they are, are using. Um, and so you, you could easily run ships off hydrogen or, um, biofuel or anything, but all of those, yeah. Or, um, what are some of the other ones? Uh, methanol derived from, yeah, like e-fuels and stuff. Very easy tech technologically speaking, but you're never going to do it without just dramatically increasing the cost. Um, so these wind-powered solutions, you're probably not ever going to see a purely wind-powered ship anymore, other than, you know, just like yachts that you're, you're on for fun. Um, but you can really, when the conditions are good, you can just really take out a lot of the, the fuel. So, you know, if you're getting half of your uh, power comes from sailing, then you've reduced your emissions by half, even without doing anything else. Um, so I think that it is really going to make sense from that point of view. And you can imagine it's going to be a lot easier to have like a, um, a battery powered solution could go a lot further if a big chunk of your energy is coming from wind. Um, yeah. And if you are going down the biofuels route, you're going to use a lot less of it because, you know, every hard to abate industry is going to want biofuels, aviation's going to want them. And you know, I don't know, probably performance cars and, um, or yeah, like nostalgic performance cars, I should say. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that it's definitely not going to be a single bullet, but, um, a silver bullet, I should say, but it's definitely it, a big chunk can really help a lot and really increase the envelope of, um, you know, routes that you can do on, on batteries or other zero emissions technologies. Developed in 2007, the Twin Grows Wind Farm consists of 240 Vestas V82-165 machines in central Illinois. Uh, owned and operated by EDP Renewables, Twin Grows has had a capital investment of approximately $870 million and it dispersed a little over $30 million in payments to the local governments. And the, the project, when it was built back in 2007, created about 400 full-time equivalent jobs, and there are about 30 permanent jobs at that site. Uh, the wind farm has also contributed to the landowners around about $30 million. So it's a huge financial impact to the central Illinois area. And for that reason, Twin Grows Wind Farm is our wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, which is full 
of great information that you hear on this podcast and some of the stuff we can't get to. So check out Uptime Tech News. And also check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.